471, chapters 114, 115, and 116 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 1733. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover. And I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 471, Comic Redux. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am fine. I hope you are as well. And we're starting to enjoy some nice fall weather, although today's looking to be a trifle warm for having just removed all of the air conditioners. <laughs> so that could be fun as the day goes on. But aside from that, it's looking pretty darn good. I have three, count them, three chapters for you today. Which, if you're doing the math, means that after today there is one chapter left. And you may think to yourself, self, why? Why is she leaving only one chapter for next week? It must be epic. And the answer is, well, sure, because it's the end. So, you know, it's only been a year and three quarters. It has to be epic in that respect. But it's also because the three chapters we have today go together. And again, doing the math, you can probably guess who we are going to be dealing with today. Because we have dispatched Caterus, we have watched Fernand dispatch himself, we have seen Viafore be psychologically dispatched, and that means what do we have left? We saw Denglar leave, but we haven't really seen him be dealt with. So today, finally, we go back to the source of the original pain. The person who, Ken in Hawaii, was so good about telling us way long time ago that yes, the tiff that Denglar and Edmond got into on board the ship could have been enough for Denglar to have gone as far as he did in getting retribution not quite understanding that perhaps Edmund was an even more worthy adversary in the getting back at you field. I think that by now we can probably all agree that Edmund has kicked Denglar's tuchus on the I can get back at you better competition because, well, it was, it's only been 900 pages since the first tiff. <laughs> that's, that's a commitment to getting back at someone. But before we get to that, I have some other stories about getting back at people. I have some Scotland information. So last episode, I talked to you a little bit about Glasgow and Paisley Museum and the Weaver's Cottage. And from there, we will, on the Craftlit 2018 tour to Scotland, the art and literature of Scotland, we will move on to Loch Katrine and Stirling Castle. I'm going to save Sterling Castle for next episode for 472, the end 
of the Count of Monte Cristo. There is an image on the Craftlet show notes at craftlet.com slash 471. There's, an, there's a picture that I put up from Lot Katrine. And you're going to look at this and you're going to say, wow, that's beautiful. And I have to tell you that selecting that one picture may have been the most difficult thing I've done in several months because there were so many and they're so different. Some of the really gorgeous pictures are these dark, brooding, stormy, Hogwartsy pictures. And some of them are these lush, green, like redefinitions of the words green and blue, blue for the water and the sky and green for the foliage and of course purple for the heather. Finally, I kind of eeny, meeny, miny mowed it and, and it's a beautiful picture. So there's that. Loch Katrine, which is right next to Loch Lomond, which I have been to. I don't, I don't remember going to Loch Katrine in 1987 with my family, we drove up to Edinburgh and then over to Loch Lomond and then back down. I remember it being really gray and kind of chilly, which I thought was awesome. So seeing these pictures of Loch Katrine is, first off, the sucker is nine miles long and the steamship, the Sir Walter Scott, can take you on cruises all around. And you can imagine with nine miles of length, there's plenty to see. The lake is formed by being surrounded by what are called the Trossachs. This is um, hills or mountains that are Gallic for bristly territory, which I think really describes this beautifully because both the trees are bristly, but also the ground covering is that kind of bracken. It looks very much like the moors, except craggier and taller and with, you know, trees in sections of it. And then there's the heather, which is brackeny and uh, a really, if you've never seen heather, I'll see if I can find a good up close picture of some heather. It's beautiful. I'm not claiming <laughs> any of that beauty personally. I'm just commenting that as far as purple flowers go, I really like them a lot. They're, they're really pretty. But that is neither here nor there. We have historical figures to deal with. Sir Walter Scott, some of his stories and life are centered around Loch Katrine, but also Rob Roy. Rob Roy McGregor kind of became a folklore hero. Separating his real life from his fictionalized life is, as with all folk heroes, kind of tricky to do. Not completely tricky, though, because unlike Robin Hood, there are actual factual documents that related to his life and, and things that happened to him and around him and things that happened because of him. So, Rob Roy McGregor. <laughs> it's really hard not to do bad Scottish accents with several of these names, like Rob Roy McGregor. But Rob Roy was involved historically, in an uprising that predates the Outlander, Culloden uprising. So with Outlander and the success of the, the book series and the Stars TV series, most people who aren't Scottish or don't pay a whole lot of attention to Scottish history are aware of that uprising with Bonnie Prince Charlie. But there was a previous 
Actually, there were several <laughs> because there's an uprising to support the Stuart King, James II. And then that was a lead-in to what was called the Glorious Revolution in 1688. Now, the, the people who were leading this pre-rebellion, the pre-pre-rebellion, their leader was killed. Rob Roy's father was taken to jail. His mother died while his father was in jail. His dad was finally released after two years, and he was never really okay again. And so Rob Roy had kind of a troubled start. He was 18 when he and his father went off to fight in that initial uprising. After that, his life became a series of not unlike James Fraser in the Outlander series in its current, what is it, third season. He has some back and forthing with the law and with uh, walking that very, very delicate razor's edge of not being thrilled with the British rule of Scotland and at the same time trying to preserve life, limb, and family. Rob Roy, uh, he and his wife had, I think, four boys, and they also adopted a, a child, if I recall correctly. So he he was trying to navigate that that very narrow channel, and sometimes he was more successful than others. He had some financial difficulties, and because of that, ran afoul of the, the local British in charge of the area at the time, and it became a big kerfuffle. Now, what's interesting about Rob Roy is that's all... That's all fact part. But then you have our second person of the day. You have Sir Walter Scott, who shows up. And he shows up as part of the Romantic movement. This is why you get so many jokes about him from Mark Twain. Because Mark Twain, although, as we know, anybody who made it through a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, although we know that Mark Twain was an old softy, and he loved his wife and daughters. He was not a romantic capital R. He was a romantic lowercase r. He could be incredibly sentimental, but he was not one for magic or supernatural anything. He was the tall tale guy, always with the ironically arched eyebrow. So in Huckleberry Finn, when Huckleberry Finn comes across the wrecked boat, um, like like showboat, like um, in the Ferber story slash musical showboat. He comes across a boat that's wrecked like that pretty close to the beginning of the book, and the wreck is named the Sir Walter Scott. It's a fairly unhappy part of the book, and the wreck of the Sir Walter Scott is not named accidentally by Mark Twain. It was just a way to take a jab at Scott. Part of the reason he felt free to do that is because Sir Walter Scott wrote these epic poems. I mean, he wrote books too, but he also wrote epic romantic poems. Lady of the Lake was published in 1810. It was located right here at Loch Katrine. It's got six cantos and it's huge and it's got these big guys and some of them are out to win the love of this woman, Ellen Douglas, and there's a feud and there's a reconciliation and there's a war and there's the Highland clans and the Lowland Scots. And it's all this big, epic dogpile of people and events and, you know, melodramatic action and overwrought language. Interestingly, Ellen Douglas, spelled with one S, and her father 
James Douglas are really marvelous characters. She's the woman that the guys are fighting over. Her father is a fine, upstanding, very much like John Proctor in The Crucible. My word is my bond, that kind of chivalrous behavior. And the reason I bring this up is because someone very famous who you know, whose last name is Douglas with two S's instead of just one, is named for James Douglas in The Lady of the Lake. I'm letting you think. Mm -hmm. Famous person in history, last name Douglas, two S's. Yes, Frederick Douglas is named Frederick Douglas after James Douglas. Why? Because as a slave, he didn't have a last name. And so when he finally was going to be able to have a last name, other than, you know, being required to use his owner's last name, if there was ever a need for him to have a last name as a slave, which just sticks in my craw. And this is in his autobiography. This is another people putting this on him. The line from the book is, I gave Mr. Johnson the privilege of choosing me a name, but told him he must not take from me the name of Frederick. I must hold on to that to preserve my sense of identity. Mr. Johnson had just been reading The Lady of the Lake and at once suggested that my name be Douglas. How cool is that, right? So Loch Katrine in Scotland has Rob Roy. He lived on the banks of Loch Katrine at one point. And then you have The Lady of the Lake also taking place in the Trossachs region with Lake Katrine figuring prominently. And if that weren't enough, you have Sir Walter Scott's version of the Rob Roy story uh, largely romanticized. There's also the 1995 movie with Liam Neeson, a fact of casting that I'm sure some of us find very funny, what with Liam Neeson being Irish. He plays Rob Roy. Jessica Lange plays his wife. It got pretty good reviews. I think it's got a 72 on Rotten Tomatoes. Especially if you're going on the tour, I would definitely take a look. There are also several older versions. There's, I think, a 1955 and a 1922 silent film. I am still actively trying to find all of these, and I will link out to them if I am successful. So you can get that at craftlit.com slash 471. There's a lot of interesting history there. And I, I know several of you have taken the poll that I put up. Uh, last week and talking about our next book because here we are one and a half episodes away from the end of the Count of Monte Cristo. So a couple of reminders. Number one, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to prep for the next round of things. Everybody needs to recover a little bit. In the meantime, please send in your audio commentary on what you thought of the Count of Monte Cristo. All you have to do to make this happen is dial 206-350-1642, and you can leave a voicemail message there. It will get sent to me as an audio file, or you can go to craftlet.com, and in the right-hand side, you'll see a send a message, little black tabby, like a three-ring binder notebook tabby. On the side, you click on that, and it lets you send a 90-second message, so that would require several attempts if you had a lot to say. 
If you want to record your own audio and email it, just email it to heather at craftlit.com and I'll get it that way. You can send an MP3 file or a WAV file or pretty much any audio file that you want. And we'll put those all together. Well, Justin will wind up because he's awesome putting those all together and we'll play that for you. So that's one of the things that I wanted to remind you of. The second is please take the poll if you haven't. Add your own books. I'm going back in before this episode goes live to see if I can add some of the titles that you have brought up. And of course, if you are interested in going on the tour with Diane and me, please absolutely feel free to call Diane at 1-800-826-2266 and get all the details, put $200 down per person, confirming a place for you. And this is a really important thing to do right now. Craftlet tours, because Diane is awesome, initially it's really just buzzing around the Craftlet world. It's not publicized outside uh, until a certain date. And we are in the big catalog. So that certain date has hit. We are starting to get reservations from people who are not Craftlit listeners. I mean, they might be by now, which would be awesome, but super important to get that reservation in. So again, call Diane, 1-800-826-2266 and reserve your spot now. Okay, so today's chapters. Today's chapters, 14, 15, and 16, have some interesting history going on in them. We're changing location, and it is not exactly like normal changing location, because earlier in the book, a change of location meant a change of character, and often plot was taking a turn or it was putting a lot of chess pieces on the board in specific locations, and that required a certain amount of context building. This is really just about jokes and subtle, subtle, sly references that Dumas is making to specific people's stories in history, expecting that we will understand the subtext of him name-dropping, basically. Unlike his other style of name dropping, which is, you know, Denglar had this two-bit artist on his wall instead of this fabulous guy who, oh my gosh, also happens to be my best friend who's a struggling artist, so now you'll go out and buy his paintings, right? It's not that kind of name dropping. This is historical name dropping. But the first thing we will encounter in chapter 14 today, which is called Peppino, just to give you an idea of where we're going, is of section where there's a reference to Figaro from The Marriage of Figaro, the Figaro trilogy. In the Beaumarchais text, there is a very funny section. And if you are listening to this in the car with small children, I would skip ahead three or four minutes because I'm going to read the text to you. There's a, a joke that my students used to say when I was teaching in New York. You've probably heard this, that the F-bomb can be used as every part of speech successfully. This is Figaro's version, although not with the F-bomb. So here Figaro says, 
Devil take it, English is a marvelous language. A little of it will take you a long way. In England, if you've got goddamn, you can go anywhere and want for nothing. Fancy a nice plump chicken? You step into a tavern, you waggle your arm at the waiter like this. And he mimes turning a spit. And you say, goddamn, and they bring you a lump of salt beef and no bread. Marvelous. Feel like a glass of good burgundy or claret? Just do this. And he mimes, opening a bottle. And goddamn, they serve you foaming beer in a handsome pewter pot. Very satisfying. Say you happen to run across one of those pretty fillies who go tripping along all dainty, eyes on the ground, elbows back, hips gently swaying. All you do is give her a great big come on of a wink and goddamn she fetches you one so hard you see stars. Which proves she understands exactly what you mean. I won't deny the English themselves do put in a few extra words here and there when they're talking to each other, but it's quite obvious that goddamn is the key to the language. I cracked up. So, and it's like one throwaway line in today's chapter, chapter 14, close to the front. And it sets up a habitual joke all the way through chapter 14, which is Denglar, who we know quite well, doesn't actually speak any other languages. Because why would he? He doesn't care. He doesn't care about being a good guest. He doesn't care about being a good person. He doesn't care about being a good traveler or ambassador for his country or anything like that. He's just in it for the money. And the ways that he makes errors in Italian are awesome. I'm not going to pre-translate any of the jokes for you because Duma does it for you instead. So there's that. And then there's going to be a reference to a group of people looking like Marius and the Gracchi. And there will be references to uh, beggars, especially children beggars in Rome, including the use of the phrase that we've seen before, which was certainly accurate for the time period, but unfortunate in retrospect, which is street Arabs, these children, often gypsy children, scamming people and things like that. The part of this that is the joke is Dumas references Marius and the Gracchi. Okay, I'm linking out from craftlit.com slash 471 so that you can read up on this because the, the book that I'm going to link you to is actually an old text, but the description in the old text is so much better than anything else I found that it might be the first time that I've sent you to a Gutenberg file and not felt bad about it. First, the Gracchi. The Gracchi were two brothers, Tiberius and Gaius. And their last name is actually Gracchus, G-R-A-C-C-H-U-S. So together, they are the Gracchi. These guys are actually pretty well known in history because they did some really interesting stuff between 133 and 123-ish in the BCE part of time. So pre-Caesar. Tiberius, well, first off, their mother raised them. If you, you, how do I explain this quickly? If you think of them as being nouveau riche, father died, mother came from a better family than the father. She feels the need to have her children succeed, exceed where her husband had gotten to. So the older brother Tiberius goes off in the war and he's actually quite good. And he comes home eventually a hero, 
And on the way home, and this is where it actually becomes important, he, after seeing all this sacrifice for Rome, for SPQR, he witnesses a, a lot of economic distress. Part of this comes because public land that had become public because of conquering places, it had been divided up among speculators, like real estate land developers, and rich guys. And the way that that worked is they drove peasants off their farms and just kind of took over. So these peasants are now watching what had been their fields get worked by slaves because the military guys were coming back with slaves from the places that they conquered. And the peasants have no no job, no income, no hope. It was bad. So Rome starts having to create a dole queue. They have a, a welfare system. So these people who had been part of the system, who were paying taxes, you know, these these were, were working people. They'd been pushed off their land because of greedy people who just wanted a country house. And now they're having to hang around and wait for scraps because there's nowhere for them to go. They couldn't join the army legally because they wouldn't have met the proper qualifications. They wouldn't have had either the money or the social connections or the the kind of level of society that you had to be in to get in. And so that coupled with lack of other land to give in exchange for military service to people who were in the army, not the leadership, but just the army guys, you wound up with some pretty unhappy people. And it also, because of the weird restrictions, it led to troop shortages and recruitment problems. Doesn't this sound modern? It's ridiculous. So Tiberius is coming back from the war and he's walking by all these people who are lying around miserable and want work and who the government is having to pay handouts to. Tiberius sees all this. He's like, wow, this is really dumb. This is a really, really bad way to distribute wealth. And he's not talking about it in any Marxist manipulative sense. It's just, wow, that was really stupid. Now the whole place is losing money. No, 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 this is all wrong. So he comes back, and of course he's heroic, and he sees what's happening with soldiers who are coming back, and now they're poor because there's not enough money to pay them. And so he starts working towards redistributing the wealth. And he starts a, a big populist movement in the Senate. And the people are all, woo! It, it sounds really good at the beginning, and then it goes down, <laughs> it goes downhill pretty, pretty badly. Eventually, Tiberius becomes the tribune, and then the senators who were against him got like a, a militia together, marched into the forum, and had Tiberius and like 300 of his supporters clubbed to death. That was the first bloodshed that had happened more or less on the floor of the Senate. And then again, this is pre-Caesar, for like 400 years. And then Tiberius, trying to get things to be better for the people, he takes everybody off. And then, ironically, his land reform commission wound up continuing with the distribution of land much slower than he had wanted, but still it kept going. And uh, the senators who were against him kind of kept chipping away at it. Well, then his younger brother, Gaius Gracchus, takes office as tribune for the plebeians. 
and he's a little bit more practical. And he had a lot of similar ideas, uh, got quite a bit of his legislation passed, winds up kind of rigging a, a second year re-election to Tribune, which is kind of dicey. And that's when he crosses a line. He planned to extend rights, citizen rights, to non-Roman Italians. It got to the point where another Tribune vetoed it. And quite a few of the Roman poor, so people who were born in Rome, is this sounding familiar to anyone? Who were very protective of their status as citizens, they turned against Gaius. And as the support of the people started to weaken, the consul of the time wound up again using force to put this down. There was a mob that came and assassinated Gaius. He knew they were coming, so he committed suicide in 121 BCE. Everything except a grain law that he put into place was undermined within a year. And 3,000 of his supporters were arrested and put to death afterwards. Okay, so that's the Gracchi. Marius. Marius comes along later. Gaius Marius, he's a Roman general, he was a consul, and he was elected seven times. This guy is FDR. He just was unstoppable. He had army reforms. He started recruiting citizens who didn't own land. He reorganized the legions. He's the one who was the first to push back the Teutonic tribes. And so he, in history circles, is called the third founder of Rome. Now, why does he matter? We leave the Gracchi in 121 BCE. Marius shows up. He was born in 157, and then he served in the army. So he came back and stood as Plupian Tribune the year after the last Gracchus killed himself. Okay? So right after. So he has seen what they tried to do. He knows it's important because he saw a lot of the same stupid as he traveled around that Tiberius Gracchus had seen. And so he got used to a certain extent to restart a Gracchian revolution. Both Marius and the Gracchi were focused on restructuring society to a certain extent, and especially in redistributing the wealth from the 1%. So that is a long story explaining a quick joke, but what amazing history. And oh my gosh, you have to go read the section that I link you to in the Gutenberg text. It's fascinating what went on with these people. And I gave you just such a little slice as as much as that was, that was a tiny little slice of the history. There's a reference to a game called Mora. It is either spelled M-O-R-A or M-O-R-R-A, which, which I think is kind of a drinking game. They're drinking Orvieto, which is a white wine. And the game goes like this. A guy across from you lifts his hand super fast, holding up anywhere from zero to five fingers on that hand, holds it up, puts it down, and you have to correctly tell how many fingers he had up. This is a game that could only be played with drunk people or very, very small children. And in this case, it's drunk people, I'm fairly certain. So there's that. 
And there will be a reference in chapter 15 to a Bulger's repeater. This is a, a watch. The company is still making watches, by the way. I'm linking to an antique auction site that has a photograph of a watch that's probably from this time period. And holy smoke, is this thing gorgeous. It's a flashy watch to have with you. Flashy being the important part. All right, that's it. I won't have much to say after these chapters because they kind of speak for themselves. So here we go with chapters 114, 115, and 116 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 114 Papino. At the same time that the steamer disappeared behind Cape Morgion, a man travelling post on the road from Florence to Rome had just passed the little town of Aquapendente. He was travelling fast enough to cover a great deal of ground without exciting suspicion. This man was dressed in a greatcoat, or rather a surtout, a little worse for the journey, but which exhibited the ribbon of the Legion of Honour still fresh and brilliant a decoration which also ornamented the undercoat. He might be recognised not only by these signs, but also from the accent with which he spoke to the postillion as a Frenchman. Another proof that he was a native of the universal country was apparent in the fact of his knowing no other Italian words than the terms used in music, and which, like the Godam of Figaro, served all possible linguistic requirements. Allegro! he called out to the postillions at every ascent. "'Moderato!' he cried as they descended, and heaven knows there are hills enough between Rome and Florence by the way of Aquapendente. These two words greatly amused the men to whom they were addressed. On reaching La Storta, the point from whence Rome is first visible, the traveller evinced none of the enthusiastic curiosity which usually leads strangers to stand up and endeavour to catch sight of the dome of St. Peter's, which may be seen long before any other object is distinguishable. No, he merely drew a pocket-book from his pocket, and took from it a paper folded in four, and after having examined it in a manner almost reverential, he said, Good, I have it still. The carriage entered by the Porto del Popolo, turned to the left, and stopped at the Hotel de Spagna. Old Pastrini, our former acquaintance, received the traveller at the door, hat in hand. The traveller alighted, ordered a good dinner, and inquired the address of the house of Thompson and French, which was immediately given to him, as it was one of the most celebrated in Rome. It was situated in the Via dei Banchi, near St. Peter's in Rome, as everywhere else the arrival of a post-chaise is an event. Ten young descendants of Marius and the Gracchi, barefooted and out at elbows, with one hand resting on the hip, and the other gracefully curved above the head, stared at the traveller, the post-chaise, and the horses. To these were added about fifty little vagabonds from the Papal States, who earned a pittance by diving into the Tiber at high water from the bridge of Sant'Angelo. Now, as these street Arabs of Rome, more fortunate than those of Paris, understand every language, more especially the French, they heard the traveller order an apartment, a dinner, and finally inquire the way to the house of Thompson and French. The result was that when the newcomer left the hotel with the Cicerone, a man detached himself from the rest of the idlers, 
and without having been seen by the traveller, and appearing to excite no attention from the guide, followed the stranger with as much skill as a Parisian police agent would have used. The Frenchman had been so impatient to reach the house of Thompson and French that he would not wait for the horses to be harnessed, but left word for the carriage to overtake him on the road, or to wait for him at the banker's door. He reached it before the carriage arrived. The Frenchman entered, leaving in the anteroom his guide, who immediately entered into conversation with two or three of the industrious idlers, who are always to be found in Rome at the doors of banking-houses, churches, museums, or theatres. With the Frenchman, the man who had followed him entered too. The Frenchman knocked at the inner door, and entered the first room. His shadow did the same. "'Messrs. Thompson and French?' inquired the stranger. An attendant arose at a sign from a confidential clerk at the first desk. "'Whom shall I announce?' said the attendant. "'Baron d'Anglars.' "'Follow me,' said the man. A door opened, through which the attendant and the baron disappeared. The man who had followed Danglars sat down on a bench. The clerk continued to write for the next five minutes. The man preserved profound silence and remained perfectly motionless. Then the pen of the clerk ceased to move over the paper. He raised his head, and appearing to be perfectly sure of privacy, "'Aha,' he said, "'here you are, Peppino.' "'Yes,' was the laconic reply. "'You have found out that there is something worth having about this large gentleman. "'There is no great merit due to me, for we were informed of it. "'You know his business here, then?' "'Pardieu, he has come to draw, but I don't know how much.' "'You will know presently, my friend.' "'Very well. Only do not give me false information, as you did the other day.' "'What do you mean? Of whom do you speak? "'Was it the Englishman who carried off three thousand crowns from here the other day?' "'No. He really had three thousand crowns, and we found them. "'I mean the Russian prince, who you said had thirty thousand livres, "'and we only found twenty-two thousand. "'You must have searched badly.' "'Luigi Vampa himself searched.' "'Indeed. But you must let me make my observations, "'or the Frenchman will transact his business without my knowing the sum.' Peppino nodded, and, taking a rosary from his pocket, began to mutter a few prayers while the clerk disappeared through the same door by which Donglars and the attendant had gone out. At the expiration of ten minutes the clerk returned with a beaming countenance. "'Well?' asked Peppino of his friend. "'Joy! Joy! The sum is large!' Five or six millions, is it not?' "'Yes, you know the amount?' "'On the receipt of the Count of Monte Cristo.' "'Why? How came you to be so well acquainted with all this?' "'I told you we were informed beforehand.' "'Then why do you apply to me?' "'That I may be sure.' I have the right man. Yes, it is indeed he. Five millions, a pretty sum, eh, Peppino? Hush! Here is our man. The clerk seized his pen, and Peppino his beads. One was writing and the other praying when the door opened. Danglars looked radiant with joy. The banker accompanied him to the door. Peppino followed Danglars.
According to the arrangements, the carriage was waiting at the door. The guide held the door open. Guides are useful people who will turn their hands to anything. Donglars leapt into the carriage like a young man of twenty. The cicerone reclosed the door and sprang up by the side of the coachman. Peppino mounted the seat behind. "'Will your excellency visit St. Peter's?' asked the cicerone. "'I did not come to Rome to see,' said Donglars aloud. Then he added softly with an avaricious smile, "'I came to touch,' and he wrapped his pocket-book in which he had just placed a letter. "'Then your excellency is going to the hotel.' "'Casa Pastrini,' said the cicerone to the coachman, and the carriage drove rapidly on. Ten minutes afterwards the baron entered his apartment, and Peppino stationed himself on the bench outside the door of the hotel, after having whispered something in the ear of one of the descendants of Marius and the Gracchi, whom we noticed at the beginning of the chapter, who immediately ran down the road leading to the capital at his fullest speed. Donglars was tired and sleepy. He therefore went to bed, placing his pocket-book under his pillow. Peppino had a little spare time, so he had a game of mora with the Facini, lost three crowns, and then to console himself drank a bottle of Orvieto. The next morning Donglars awoke late. Though he went to bed so early, he had not slept well for five or six nights, even if he had slept at all. He breakfasted heartily, and, caring little, as he said, for the beauties of the Eternal City, ordered post-horses at noon. But Donglars had not reckoned upon the formalities of the police and the idleness of the posting-master. The horses only arrived at two o'clock, and the cicerone did not bring the passport till three. All these preparations had collected a number of idlers round the door of Signor Pastrini's. The descendants of Marius and Gracchi were also not wanting. The baron walked triumphantly through the crowd, who for the sake of gain styled him Your Excellency. As Donglars had hitherto contented himself with being called a baron, he felt rather flattered at the title of Excellency, and distributed a dozen silver coins among the beggars, who were ready for twelve more to call him Your Highness. "'Which road?' asked the postilion in Italian. "'The Ancona road,' replied the baron. Signor Pastrini interpreted the question and answer, and the horses galloped off. Donglars intended travelling to Venice, where he would receive one part of his fortune, and then proceeding to Vienna, where he would find the rest. He meant to take up his residence in the latter town, which he had been told was a city of pleasure. He had scarcely advanced three leagues out of Rome, when daylight began to disappear. Donglars had not intended starting so late, or he would have remained. He put his head out and asked the postilion how long it would be before they reached the next town. "'Non capisco,' do not understand, was the reply. Donglars bent his head, which he meant to imply, "'Very well.' The carriage again moved on. "'I will stop at the first posting-house,' said Donglars to himself. He still felt the same self-satisfaction which he had experienced the previous evening, and which had procured him so good a night's rest.' He was luxuriously stretched in a good English calash, with double springs. He was drawn by four good horses at full gallop. 
he knew the relay to be at a distance of seven leagues what subject of meditation could present itself to the banker so fortunately become bankrupt Donglar thought for ten minutes about his wife in paris another ten minutes about his daughter travelling with mademoiselle d'armilly the same period was given to his creditors and the manner in which he intended spending their money and then having no subject left for contemplation he shut his eyes and fell asleep now and then a jolt more violent than the rest caused him to open his eyes then he felt that he was still being carried with great rapidity over the same country thickly strewn with broken aqueducts which looked like granite giants petrified while running a race but the night was cold dull and rainy and it was much more pleasant for a traveller to remain in the warm carriage than to put his head out of the window to make inquiries of a postillion whose only answer was non capisco Donglar therefore continued to sleep saying to himself that he would be sure to awake at the posting-house the carriage stopped Donglar fancied that they had reached the long-desired point he opened his eyes and looked through the window expecting to find himself in the midst of some town or at least a village but he saw nothing except what seemed like a ruin where three or four men went and came like shadows Donglar waited a moment expecting the postillion to come and demand payment with the termination of his stage he intended taking advantage of the opportunity to make fresh inquiries of the new conductor but the horses were unharnessed and others put in their places without any one claiming money from the traveller Donglar, astonished opened the door but a strong hand pushed him back and the carriage rolled on the baron was completely roused eh hey, he said to the postillion eh hey, mio caro this was another little piece of italian the baron had learned from hearing his daughter sing italian duets with cavalcanti but mio caro did not reply Donglar then opened the window come my friend he said thrusting his hand through the opening where are we going dentro la testa answered a solemn and imperious voice accompanied by a menacing gesture Donglar thought dentro la testa meant put in your head he was making rapid progress in italian he obeyed not without some uneasiness which momentarily increasing caused his mind instead of being as unoccupied as it was when he began his journey to fill with ideas which were very likely to keep a traveller awake more especially one in such a situation as Donglar. his eyes acquired that quality which in the first moment of strong emotion enables them to see distinctly and which afterwards fails from being too much taxed before we are alarmed we see correctly when we are alarmed we see double and when we have been alarmed we see nothing but trouble Donglar observed a man in a cloak galloping at the right hand of the carriage some gendarme he exclaimed can i have been intercepted by french telegrams to the pontifical authorities he resolved to end his anxiety where are you taking me he asked dentro la testa replied the same voice with the same menacing accent Donglar turned to the left another man on horseback was galloping on that side decidedly said Donglar with a perspiration on his forehead i must be under arrest 
and he threw himself back into the calash, not this time to sleep, but to think. Directly afterwards the moon rose. He then saw the great aqueducts, those stone phantoms which he had before remarked. Only then they were on the right hand. Now they were on the left. He understood that they had described a circle, and were bringing him back to Rome. "'Oh, unfortunate!' he cried. "'They must have obtained my arrest!' The carriage continued to roll on with frightful speed. An hour of terror elapsed, for every spot they passed showed that they were on the road back. At length he saw a dark mass against which it seemed as if the carriage was about to dash, but the vehicle turned to one side, leaving the barrier behind, and Danglars saw that it was one of the ramparts encircling Rome. "'Mon Dieu!' cried Danglars. "'We are not returning to Rome!' "'Then it is not justice that is pursuing me. "'Gracious heavens! "'Another idea presents itself. "'What if they should be?' "'His hair stood on end. "'He remembered those interesting stories, "'so little believed in Paris, "'respecting Roman bandits. "'He remembered the adventures that Albert de Morcerf had related "'when it was intended that he should marry Mademoiselle Eugenie. "'They are robbers, perhaps,' he muttered. Just then the carriage rolled on something harder than gravel road. Danglars hazarded a look on both sides of the road, and perceived monuments of a singular form, and his mind now recalled all the details Morcerf had related, and comparing them with his own situation, he felt sure that he must be on the Appian Way. On the left, in a sort of valley, he perceived a circular excavation. It was Caracalla's Circus. On a word from the man who rode at the side of the carriage, it stopped. At the same time, the door was open. Skendi, exclaimed a commanding voice. Danglars instantly descended. Although he did not yet speak Italian, he understood it very well. More dead than alive, he looked around him. Four men surrounded him, besides the postilion. Dicoa, said one of the men, descending a little path leading out of the Appian Way. Danglars followed his guide without opposition, and had no occasion to turn around to see whether the three others were following him. Still, it appeared as though they were stationed at equal distances from one another, like sentinels. After walking for about ten minutes, during which Danglars did not exchange a single word with his guide, he found himself between a hillock and a clump of high weeds, Three men, standing silent, formed a triangle, of which he was the centre. He wished to speak, but his tongue refused to move. "'Avanti!' said the same sharp and imperative voice. This time Danglars had double reason to understand, for if the word and gesture had not explained the speaker's meaning, it was clearly expressed by the man walking behind him, who pushed him so rudely that he struck against the guide. This guide was our friend Peppino, who dashed into the thicket of high weeds through a path which none but lizards or polecats could have imagined to be an open road. Peppino stopped before a pit overhung by thick hedges. The pit, half open, afforded a passage to the young man, who disappeared like the evil spirits in the fairy tales. The voice and gesture of the man who followed Danglars ordered him to do the same. There was no longer any doubt. The bankrupt 
was in the hands of Roman banditti. Donglara quitted himself like a man placed between two dangerous positions, and who is rendered brave by fear. Notwithstanding his large stomach, certainly not intended to penetrate the fissures of the campagna, he slid down like Peppino, and closing his eyes fell upon his feet. As he touched the ground, he opened his eyes. The path was wide, but dark. Peppino, who cared little for being recognized now that he was in his own territories, struck a light and lit a torch. Two other men descended after Donglar, forming the rearguard, and pushing Donglar whenever he happened to stop. They came by a gentle declivity to the intersection of two corridors. The walls were hollowed out in sepulchres, one above the other, and which seemed in contrast with the white stones to open their large dark eyes like those which we see on the faces of the dead. A sentinel struck the rings of his carbine against his left hand. "'Who comes there?' he cried. "'A friend, a friend,' said Peppino. "'But where is the captain?' "'There,' said the sentinel, pointing over his shoulder to a spacious crypt, hollowed out of the rock, the lights from which shone into the passage through the large arched openings. "'Fine spoil, captain,' "'Fine spoil,' said Peppino in Italian, and taking Donglar by the collar of his coat, he dragged him to an opening resembling a door through which they entered the apartment which the captain appeared to have made his dwelling-place. "'Is this the man?' asked the captain, who was attentively reading Plutarch's Life of Alexander. "'Himself, captain, himself.' "'Very well, show him to me.' At this rather impertinent order, Peppino raised his torch to the face of Donglar, who hastily withdrew that he might not have his eyelashes burnt. His agitated features presented the appearance of pale and hideous terror. "'The man is tired,' said the captain. "'Conduct him to his bed.' "'Oh,' murmured Donglar, "'that bed is probably one of the coffins hollowed in the wall, and the sleep I shall enjoy.' will be death from one of the poniards I saw glistening in the darkness. From their beds of dried leaves or wolfskins at the back of the chamber now arose the companions of the man who had been found by Albert de Morcerf reading Caesar's commentaries, and by Donglars studying the life of Alexander. The banker uttered a groan and followed his guide. He neither supplicated nor exclaimed. He no longer possessed strength will, power, or feeling. He followed where they led him. At length he found himself at the foot of a staircase, and he mechanically lifted his foot five or six times. Then a low door was opened before him, and bending his head to avoid striking his forehead, he entered a small room cut out of the rock. The cell was clean, though empty and dry, though situated at an immeasurable distance under the earth. A bed of dried grass, covered with goatskins, was placed in one corner. Donglar brightened up on beholding it, fancying that it gave some promise of safety. "'Oh, God be praised,' he said. "'It is a real bed.' "'Echo,' said the guide, and pushing Donglar into the cell, he closed the door upon him. A bolt grated, and Donglar was a prisoner.' 
If there had been no bolt, it would have been impossible for him to pass through the midst of the garrison who held the catacombs of San Sebastian, encamped round a master whom our readers must have recognised as the famous Luigi Vampa. Danglars, too, had recognised the bandit, whose existence he would not believe when Albert de Morcerf mentioned him in Paris. And not only did he recognise him, but the cell in which Albert had been confined, and which was probably kept for the accommodation of strangers. These recollections were dwelt upon with some pleasure by Danglars, and restored him to some degree of tranquillity. Since the bandits had not dispatched him at once, he felt that they would not kill him at all. They had arrested him for the purpose of robbery, and as he had only a few louis about him, he doubted not he would be ransomed. He remembered that Morcerf had been taxed at four thousand crowns, and as he considered himself of much greater importance than Morcerf, he fixed his own price at eight thousand crowns. Eight thousand crowns amounted to forty-eight thousand livres. He would then have about five million and fifty thousand francs left. With this sum, he could manage to keep out of difficulties. Therefore, tolerably secure in being able to extricate himself from his position, provided he were not rated at the unreasonable sum of five million and fifty thousand francs, he stretched himself on his bed, and after turning over two or three times, fell asleep with the tranquillity of the hero whose life Luigi Vampa was studying. End of chapter 114 Chapter 115 Luigi Vampa's Bill of Fare we awake from every sleep, except the one dreaded by Danglars. He awoke to a Parisian, accustomed to silken curtains, walls hung with a velvet drapery, and the soft perfume of burning wood, the white smoke of which diffuses itself in graceful curves around the room. The appearance of the whitewashed cell which greeted his eyes on awakening seemed like the continuation of some disagreeable dream. But in such a situation, a single moment suffices to change the strongest doubt into certainty yes yes he murmured i am in the hands of the brigands of whom albert de morcerf spoke his first idea was to breathe that he might know whether he was wounded he borrowed this from don quixote the only book he had ever read but which he still slightly remembered no he cried they have not wounded but perhaps they have robbed me and he thrust his hands into his pockets they were untouched the hundred louis he had reserved for his journey from rome to venice were in his trousers pocket and in that of his greatcoat he found the little note-case containing his letter of credit for five million and fifty thousand francs singular bandits he exclaimed they have left me purse and pocket-book as i was saying last night they intend me to be ransomed hello here is my watch let me see what time it is. Danglars' watch, one of Bourguet's repeaters, which he had carefully wound up on the previous night, struck half-past five. Without this, Danglars would have been quite ignorant of the time, for daylight did not reach his cell. Should he demand an explanation from the bandits, or should he wait patiently for them to propose it? The last alternative seemed the most prudent, so he waited until twelve o'clock during all this time a sentinel who had been relieved at eight o'clock had been watching his door 
Donglar suddenly felt a strong inclination to see the person who kept watch over him. He had noticed that a few rays, not of daylight but from a lamp, penetrated through the ill-joined planks of the door. He approached just as the brigand was refreshing himself with a mouthful of brandy, which, owing to the leathern bottle containing it, sent forth an odour which was extremely unpleasant to Donglar. Huh! he exclaimed, retreating to the farther corner of his cell. At twelve this man was replaced by another functionary, and Donglar, wishing to catch sight of his new guardian, approached the door again. He was an athletic, gigantic bandit, with large eyes, thick lips, and a flat nose. His red hair fell in dishevelled masses like snakes around his shoulders. "'Aha!' cried Donglar. "'This fellow is more like an ogre than anything else. However, I am rather too old and tough to be very good eating.' We see that Donglar was collected enough to jest. At the same time, as though to disprove the ogreish propensities, the man took some black bread, cheese, and onions from his wallet, which he began devouring voraciously. "'May I be hanged?' said Donglar, glancing at the bandit's dinner through the crevices of the door. "'May I be hanged if I can understand how people can eat such filth?' And he withdrew to seat himself upon his goatskin, which reminded him of the smell of the brandy. But the mysteries of nature are incomprehensible, and there are certain invitations contained in even the coarsest food which appeal very irresistibly to a fasting stomach. Danglars felt his own not to be very well supplied just then, and gradually the man appeared less ugly, the bread less black, and the cheese more fresh, while those dreadful vulgar onions recalled to his mind certain sauces and side-dishes which his cook prepared in a very superior manner whenever he said, "'Monsieur Denisot, let me have a nice little fricassee to-day.' He got up and knocked on the door. The bandit raised his head. Donglar knew that he was heard, so he redoubled his blows. "'Que cosa?' asked the bandit. "'Come, come,' said Donglar, tapping his fingers against the door. "'I think it is quite time to think of giving me something to eat.' But whether he did not understand him, or whether he had received no orders respecting the nourishment of Donglar, the giant, without answering, went on with his dinner. Donglar's feelings were hurt, and not wishing to put himself under obligations to the brute, the banker threw himself down again on his goatskin, and did not breathe another word.' Four hours passed by, and the giant was replaced by another bandit. Donglars, who really began to experience sundry gnawings at the stomach, arose softly again, applied his eye to the crack of the door, and recognized the intelligent countenance of his guide. It was indeed Peppino who was preparing to mount guard, as comfortably as possible, by seating himself opposite to the door, and placing between his legs an earthen pan containing chickpeas stewed with bacon. Near the pan he also placed a pretty little basket of villetri grapes and a flask of orvieto. Peppino was decidedly an epicure. Donglar watched these preparations and his mouth watered. Come, he said to himself, let me try if you will be more tractable than the other. And he tapped gently at the door. Oniva, coming, exclaimed Peppino who, from frequenting the house of Signor Pastrini, understood French perfectly in all its idioms. 
Danglars immediately recognized him as the man who had called out in such a furious manner. "'Put in your head!' But this was not the time for recrimination. So he assumed his most agreeable manner, and said with a gracious smile, "'Excuse me, sir, but are they not going to give me any dinner?' "'Does your excellency happen to be hungry?' "'Happen to be hungry? That's pretty good, when I haven't eaten for twenty-four hours.' muttered Danglars. Then he added aloud, "'Yes, sir, I am hungry, very hungry.' "'What would your excellency like?' And Peppino placed his pan on the ground, so that the steam rose directly under the nostrils of Danglars. "'Give your orders.' "'Have you kitchens here?' "'Kitchens? Of course, complete ones.' "'And cooks? Excellent.' "'Well, a foul fish game. It signifies little, so that I eat.' "'As your excellency pleases. You mentioned a fowl, I think.' "'Yes, a fowl.' Peppino, turning around, shouted, "'A fowl for his excellency.' His voice yet echoed in the archway, when a handsome, graceful, and half-naked young man appeared, bearing a fowl in a silver dish on his head, without the assistance of his hands. "'I could almost believe myself at the Café de Paris,' murmured Danglars. "'Here, Your Excellency,' said Peppino, taking the fowl from the young bandit and placing it on the worm-eaten table, which with the stool and the goatskin bed formed the entire furniture of the cell. Danglars asked for a knife and fork. "'Here, Excellency,' said Peppino, offering him a little blunt knife and a boxwood fork. Danglars took the knife in one hand and the fork in the other, and was about to cut up the fowl. "'Pardon me, Excellency,' said Peppino, placing his hand on the banker's shoulder. "'People pay here before they eat. They might not be satisfied, and—' "'Aha,' thought Danglars, "'this is not so much like Paris, except that I shall probably be skinned.' "'Never mind, I'll fix that all right. "'I have always heard how cheap poultry is in Italy. "'I should think a fowl is worth about twelve sous at Rome.' "'There,' he said, throwing a louis down. "'Peppino picked up the louis, "'and Danglars again prepared to carve the fowl. "'Stay a moment, Your Excellency,' said Peppino, rising. "'You still owe me something.' "'I said they would skin me,' thought Danglars. But resolving to resist the extortion, he said, "'Come, how much do I owe you for this fowl?' "'Your Excellency has given me a louis on account.' "'A louis on account for a fowl?' "'Certainly. And Your Excellency now owes me a four thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine louis.' Danglars opened his enormous eyes on hearing this gigantic joke. "'Come, come.' this is very droll very amusing i allow but as i am very hungry pray allow me to eat stay here is another louis for you then that will make only four thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight louis more said peppino with the same indifference i shall get them all in time oh as for that said danglars angry at this prolongation of the jest as for that you won't get them at all go to the devil you do not know with whom you have to deal. Peppino made a sign, 
and the youth hastily removed the fowl. Donglar threw himself upon his goatskin, and Peppino, reclosing the door again, began eating his peas and bacon. Though Donglar could not see Peppino, the noise of his teeth allowed no doubt as to his occupation. He was certainly eating, and noisily too, like an ill-bred man. Brute, said Donglar. Peppino pretended not to hear him, and without even turning his head continued to eat slowly. Donglar's stomach felt so empty that it seemed as if it would be impossible ever to fill it again. Still, he had patience for another half-hour, which appeared to him like a century. He again arose and went to the door. "'Come, sir, do not keep me starving here any longer, but tell me what they want.' "'Nay, Your Excellency, it is you who should tell us what you want. Give your orders, and we will execute them.' "'Then open the door directly.' Peppino obeyed. "'Now look here. I want something to eat. To eat, do you hear?' "'Are you hungry?' "'Come, you understand me.' "'What would your excellency like to eat?' "'A piece of dry bread, since the fowls are beyond all price in this accursed place.' "'Bread? Very well. "'Hello there. Some bread,' he called. The youth brought a small loaf. "'How much?' asked Donglar. Four thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight louis,' said Vapino. "'You have paid two louis in advance.' "'What?' One hundred thousand francs for a loaf? One hundred thousand francs, repeated Peppino. But you only asked one hundred thousand francs for a fowl. We have a fixed price for all our provisions. It signifies nothing whether you eat much or little, whether you have ten dishes or one. It is always the same price. What? Still keeping up this silly jest? My dear fellow, it is perfectly ridiculous stupid you had better tell me at once that you intend starving me to death oh dear no your excellency unless you intend to commit suicide pay and eat and what am i to pay with brute said donglar enraged do you suppose i carry one hundred thousand francs in my pocket your excellency has five million and fifty thousand francs in your pocket that will be fifty fowls at one hundred thousand francs apiece, and half a fowl for the fifty thousand. Donglar shuddered. The bandage fell from his eyes, and he understood the joke, which he did not think quite so stupid as he had done just before. Come, he said, if I pay you the one hundred thousand francs, will you be satisfied and allow me to eat at my ease? Certainly, said Peppino. How can I pay them? Oh, nothing easier. You have an account open with Messrs. Thompson and French. Vide Banchi, Rome. Give me a draft for 4,998 louis on these gentlemen, and our banker shall take it. Donglar thought it as well to comply with good grace. So he took the pen, ink, and paper Peppino offered him, wrote the draft, and signed it. Here, he said, here is a draft at sight. And here is your fowl. 
Danglars sighed while he carved the fowl. It appeared very thin for the price it had cost. As for Peppino, he examined the paper attentively, put it into his pocket, and continued eating his peas. End of chapter 115「Chapter 116. The Pardon The next day Danglars was again hungry. Certainly the air of that dungeon was very provocative of appetite. The prisoner expected that he would be at no expense that day, for, like an economical man, he had concealed half of his fowl and a piece of the bread in the corner of his cell. But he had no sooner eaten than he felt thirsty. He had forgotten that. He struggled against his thirst till his tongue clave to the roof of his mouth. Then, no longer able to resist, he called out. The sentinel opened the door. It was a new face. He thought it would be better to transact business with his old acquaintance, so he sent for Peppino. "'Here I am, Excellency,' said Peppino, with an eagerness which Donglars thought favourable to him. "'What do you want?' "'Something to drink.' "'Your Excellency knows that wine is beyond all price near Rome.' "'Then give me water,' cried Donglars, endeavouring to parry the blow. "'Oh, water is even more scarce than wine, Your Excellency. There has been such a drought.' "'Come,' thought Donglars, "'it is the same old story.' And while he smiled as he attempted to regard the affair as a joke, he felt his temples get moist with perspiration.' "'Come, my friend,' said Danglars, seeing that he made no impression on Peppino. "'You will not refuse me a glass of wine. "'I have already told you that we do not sell at retail. "'Well, then, let me have a bottle of the least expensive.' "'They are all the same price. "'And what is that?' Twenty-five thousand francs a bottle.' "'Tell me.' cried Danglars, in a tone whose bitterness Harpagon alone has been capable of revealing. "'Tell me that you wish to despoil me of all. It will be sooner over than devouring me piecemeal. It is possible such may be the master's intention.' "'The master? Who is he?' "'The person to whom you were conducted yesterday.' "'Where is he?' "'Here.' let me see him certainly and the next moment luigi vampa appeared before danglars you sent for me he said to the prisoner are you sir the chief of the people who brought me here yes your excellency what then how much do you require for my ransom merely the five million you have about you Danglars felt a dreadful spasm dart through his heart. "'But this is all I have left in the world,' he said, "'out of an immense fortune. "'If you deprive me of that, take away my life also. "'We are forbidden to shed your blood.' "'And by whom are you forbidden?' "'By him we obey.' "'You do then obey someone?' "'Yes, a chief.' "'I thought you said you were the chief.' "'So I am of these men, but there is another over me.' "'And did your superior order you to treat me in this way?' "'Yes.' 
"'But my purse will be exhausted.' "'Probably.' "'Come,' said Danglars. "'Will you take a million?' "'No.' Two million. Three. Four. "'Come, four. "'I will give them to you on condition that you let me go.' "'Why do you offer me four million for what is worth five million? "'This is a kind of usury, banker, that I do not understand.' "'Take all, then. Take all, I tell you, and kill me.' "'Come, come, calm yourself. You will excite your blood, and that would produce an appetite it would require a million a day to satisfy. Be more economical.' "'But when I have no more money left to pay you?' asked the infuriated Danglars. "'Then you must suffer hunger.' "'Suffer hunger?' said Danglars, becoming pale. "'Most likely,' replied Vampa coolly. "'But you say you do not wish to kill me?' "'No. "'And yet you will let me perish with hunger?' "'Ah, that is a very different thing.' "'Well then, wretches,' cried Danglars, "'I will defy your infamous calculations. "'I would rather die at once. "'You may torture, torment, kill me, "'but you shall not have my signature again.' "'As your excellency pleases,' said Vampa, as he left the cell. Danglars, raving, threw himself on the goatskin. "'Who could these men be? "'Who was the invisible chief? "'What could be his intentions toward him? "'And why, when everyone else was allowed to be ransomed, "'might he not also be? "'Oh, yes, certainly, a speedy, violent death "'would be a fine means of deceiving these remorseless enemies "'who appeared to pursue him with such incomprehensible vengeance. "'But to die?' For the first time in his life, Danglars contemplated death with a mixture of dread and desire. The time had come when the implacable spectre, which exists in the mind of every human creature, arrested his attention and called out with every pulsation of his heart, Thou shalt die. Danglars resembled a timid animal, excited in the chase. First it flies, then despairs, and at last, by the very force of desperation, sometimes succeeds in eluding its pursuers. Danglars meditated an escape, but the walls were solid rock. A man was sitting reading at the only outlet to the cell, and behind that man shapes armed with guns continually passed. His resolution not to sign lasted two days, after which he offered a million for some food. They sent him a magnificent supper, and took his million. From this time the prisoner resolved to suffer no longer, but to have everything he wanted. At the end of twelve days, after having made a splendid dinner, he reckoned his accounts and found that he had only fifty thousand francs left. Then a strange reaction took place. He, who had just abandoned five million, endeavoured to save the fifty thousand francs he had left, and sooner than give them up he resolved to enter again upon a life of privation. He was deluded by the hopefulness that is a premonition of madness. He, who for so long a time had forgotten God, began to think that miracles were possible, that the accursed cavern might be discovered by the officers of the Papal States, who would release him, that then he would have fifty thousand remaining, which would be sufficient to save him from starvation, and finally he prayed that this sum might be preserved to him, 
and as he prayed he wept three days passed thus during which his prayers were frequent if not heartfelt sometimes he was delirious and fancied he saw an old man stretched on a pallet he also was dying of hunger on the fourth he was no longer a man but a living corpse he had picked up every crumb that had been left from his former meals and was beginning to eat the matting which covered the floor of his cell then he entreated peppino as he would a guardian angel to give him food he offered him one thousand francs for a mouthful of bread but peppino did not answer on the fifth day he dragged himself to the door of the cell are you not a christian he said falling on his knees do you wish to assassinate a man who in the eyes of heaven is a brother oh my former friends my former friends he murmured and fell with his face to the ground then rising in despair he exclaimed the chief the chief here i am said vampa instantly appearing what do you want take my last gold muttered danglars holding out his pocket-book and let me live here i ask no more for liberty i only ask to live then you suffer a great deal oh yes yes cruelly still there have been men who suffered more than you i do not think so yes those who have died of hunger danglars thought of the old man whom in his hours of delirium he had seen groaning on his bed he struck his forehead on the ground and groaned yes he said there have been some who have suffered more than i have but then they must have been martyrs at least do you repent asked a deep solemn voice which caused danglars hair to stand on end his feeble eyes endeavored to distinguish objects and behind the bandit he saw a man enveloped in a cloak half lost in the shadow of a stone column of what must i repent stammered danglars of the evil you have done said the voice oh yes oh yes i do indeed repent and he struck his breast with his emaciated fist then i forgive you said the man dropping his cloak and advancing to the light the count of monte cristo said danglars more pale from terror than he had been just before from hunger and misery you are mistaken i am not the count of monte cristo then who are you i am he whom you sold and dishonored i am he whose betrothed you prostituted i am he upon whom you trampled that you might raise yourself to fortune i am he whose father you condemned to die of hunger i am he whom you also condemned to starvation and who yet forgives you because he hopes to be forgiven i am edmond dante danglars uttered a cry and fell prostrate rise said the count your life is safe the same good fortune has not happened to your accomplices one is mad the other dead keep the fifty thousand francs you have left i give them to you the five million you stole from the hospitals has been restored to them by an unknown hand 
and now eat and drink. I will entertain you tonight. Vampa, when this man is satisfied, let him be free. Danglars remained prostrate while the Count withdrew. When he raised his head, he saw disappearing down the passage nothing but a shadow before which the bandits bowed. According to the Count's directions, Danglars was waited on by Vampa, who brought him the best wine and fruits of Italy. Then, having conducted him to the road and pointed to the post-chaise, left him leaning against a tree. He remained there all night, not knowing where he was. When daylight dawned, he saw that he was near a stream. He was thirsty, and dragged himself towards it. As he stooped down to drink, he saw that his hair had become entirely white. End of chapter 116 So, we have now dealt with Denglar. He has lost everything. Oh, well. But I thought this was one of the more ambivalent ends to one of our bad guys. Denglar's hair has turned white. Clearly, he has suffered the greatest horror of his life possible. An avaricious man who is now reduced to nothing. He's sent off with a good meal and really good wine, and Vampa points to the post-chase and then leaves him. And it doesn't say what happens with the carriage. I mean, the carriage is there. It can take him somewhere. Maybe he's not getting into it because he doesn't have any money to pay for it anymore. I am not sure. But when he drags himself to the river to drink, this is a, a man who's been reduced in a very similar way to the way that Viafor was reduced. But I also thought it was so interesting that at the end of this particular act of vengeance, Monte Cristo says, I forgive you. Could he have said that before he saw the other three go down? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. And I, I can't help but wonder if the way he has Dunglar dealt with was changed at all because of what happened with Viafor and Edward. I'm not sure. It's one of the things I am looking forward to hearing from you, what your thoughts are on the ends of our four conspirators. <sighs> so again, share your thoughts on this book. You can even call now before we hit the end of the book and leave your pre-thought thoughts and then add to them later. As long as you give us your name, we'll be able to link up your audio. Just let us know if you've called more than once. And it just occurred to me, the other thing is in the app, if you use the craftlit.com app to listen to the free episodes, within that app, there's a call option. And if you tap that, it should send your smartphone straight into calling 206-350-1642. And finally, I would like to thank our Patreon patrons. These are people who have signed up since the last time I mentioned names. And these wonderful people who are supporting the show so that you can listen free are Marta P. Hi, Marta. Teresa T. Hello, Teresa. Julie. Hi, Julie. And Janalee. Hello, Janalee. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for loving the book. Thank you for calling in with your thoughts and sharing what you have thought of The Count of Monte Cristo. Again, after next week, there's going to be a little bit of a break, and then we will have the 
end of the Count of Monte Cristo episode for you and the start of something new. Don't forget, check out the poll on either Facebook or craftlit.com. All right. Have a great one. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.